Your YouTube feed is crap. Stop wasting your time watching bot-boosted shills and self-appointed gurus cloying for your attention. Instead, join the Goslings interview, live stream, and podcast. The Goslings, a dark-lit digital speakeasy of free thinkers. A super chat of radical truth-seeking wizards who eat trolls for second breakfast. Topics that'll make your mama's hair stand on end. Ideas that'll make your pastor's knees knock. Guests that will illuminate the hidden chambers of your mind. And interviews that strike down the darkness. Welcome to the Goslings. Man, I guess that uh, notification bell actually works for a change. Yeah, <laughs> hey, if you're watching people... this right now, your notification bell is working. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Welcome, all you wonderful warriors of the Broken Sword, you. I am Jonathan. I'm Nick. And we are the Goslings. And we are doing another midweek stream where we interview an amazing person that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a great time. Uh, but before we get into that, let's burn through our obligatories. Real yeah, quick. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. If you're uh, if you're watching this and you've never seen this before, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I got to get more," uh, <laughs> hit the subscribe button. Uh, we'd really appreciate that. And while you're joining us, for those of you who have subscribed yeah. and you know the way of the broken sword, go ahead and grab your drinking vessel. Yes, and we'll do our toast. You want me to leave this time? Yeah, you go ahead. All right, here we go. Take up the broken sword of your father and strike down the darkness. Amen. All right. Say, Nick, mm. what are these cool mugs we're drinking? Oh, from? great question. Well, let's let's talk about these mugs, <laughs> these amazing mugs. These are the Kothon Spartan mugs uh, handcrafted by Joel Cherico from Cherico Pottery. Uh, everyone is handcrafted, hand painted. Uh, Joel made these to be replicas of the actual Kothon that the Spartans would carry. He designed these in collaboration with the great Stephen Pressfield, author of Gates of Fire. You've got to drink like a man, drink like a Spartan. Go to Cherico.Pottery, CherricoPottery.com <laughs> and check them out. Absolutely. And uh, tell us about uh, that lush oh, man yes. mane you get going on there. Watch out, Gerard Butler. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jardani Jovanovic hair and skincare products made by real men for real men. As I like to say, be as sexy as you are deadly. Give 007 a run for his money. Awaken your inner John Wick. Or, as Nick likes to say, give your better half men a reason to doubt that. <laughs> JardaniJovanovic.com. Hair and skincare products, everything from shampoos to hair serums. Lotions, beard balms, beard oils, and pomades. Uh, great guy. Mike Fisher is the owner of the company, and uh, he's a supporter of the channel. And a uh, great man, Christian, friend, uh, small business, ran out of yeah. uh, his house with his wife in Arizona, and they are fantastic. You can see all their products behind us, and you can see the fruits of their labor on my face. So <laughs> there you go. JordaniJovanovic.com. All right, we've got a special treat for you guys tonight. Uh, this yeah. is a midweek live stream. This yeah. is not a pre-recorded interview. The old uh, school, baby. We have the great S. Douglas Woodward with us, yeah. author of Rebooting the Bible. And uh, without further ado, yeah, let's welcome Doug Woodward. Hi, gentlemen. How are hey, you? Doug. We're doing so great, man. Thank you for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. I'm really, really excited about it. You guys are a lot of fun, and it's uh, I've been looking forward to it. So thanks. 
you know, every time I listen to uh, an interview that you do, it stretches my understanding. It stretches my brain, <clears throat> hurts my brain a little bit. I'll be honest. Uh, but uh, as a as a layman Bible scholar, I'm always fascinated at your take because it's always so it's so well researched and it's a little different than what we typically hear yeah. from a lot of our guests. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I tend to get bored with the, uh, you know, sort of the standard, uh, you know, old school view of uh, whether it's a prophetic scenario or uh, or just about anything in terms of uh, biblical. I, you know, I'm a stickler for uh, for the main, you know, the, the main uh, teachings of our faith. But when it comes to some of the issues such as prophecy, then I tend to definitely tend to stretch people's thinking about, uh, you know, what what's up with that. Yeah. <laughs> is uh is your interest in prophecy what led you to eventually write rebooting the Bible? Um no, you know, actually it wasn't. It was I had written, you know, I've written like 20 books and so um I had probably written 14 books before I did rebooting the Bible. Rebooting the Bible came about as a result of stumbling over a um a website a guy named Barry Setterfield, if you're familiar with Barry. He and I have become friends. He's a physicist, an astrophysicist, and um, he had written extensively, not just on scientific matters like zero-point energy, but he had written quite a bit on the conspiracy uh, of the rabbis in the first century to uh, dilute and uh, and basically destroy uh, a lot of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament because they uh, they told the story about Jesus just really well, and uh, and they didn't want it. They didn't want that to be out there. Too many Christian evangelists were were stealing Jews out of the synagogue, and, <laughs> uh, and so they uh, they had to put an end to it. So so they decided to you know change the Bible, and uh, that sounds shocking. Um, and I, I know I, I do shock people with that, but, uh, you know, so I, I discovered that. And then I also discovered the chronology issue, the chronology. I'd always been troubled. You know, I've always kind of vacillated about, you know, do I believe in a 6,000 year old earth right. or do I believe in a, in an old earth? I've tended to become more of an old earth guy than the 6,000 year guy. Although Barry Sutterfield's work is causing me to rethink that. Uh, but his work on the chronology and the Septuagint, um, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament that was uh, translated by uh, scholars, Hebrew and Greek scholars, in Alexandria, Egypt, about 300 years before Jesus began to teach. Um, the Septuagint has a very different chronology that just so happens to align with the chronology of Egypt and the chronology of, uh, of Sumer and Babylon, of China, and so forth. And so I really began to dig into that, and I thought, hmm, this might be the answer, because uh, I was very dissatisfied with the fact that the traditional biblical chronology, having the flood at 2350 B.C., and you know, the compression with, you know, Nimrod about 100 years later and and Abraham about another 150 years later. And it was all compressed. And uh, that just didn't make sense to me. Uh, 
And uh, so anyway, I, looking at the chronology, uh, that really that really got me excited. So I began to study that. And uh, pretty soon, I it just kind of my mind, I got a picture of what I needed to do. And uh, so I, you know, have written, I guess, about, you know, 800 pages uh, in two volumes and um, maybe more than that. But but I'm really dealing with those issues. And volume one, I'm dealing with the conspiracy, uh, the rabbinical conspiracy to change the messianic prophecies and the chronology of the Old Testament. And in volume two, I'm dealing with once you understand the correct chronology, how does it alter the way we understand the stories of Genesis 1 through 11? And the, the, the reality is it changes them a great deal. Particularly, it changes the things that we've come to believe about the Tower of Babel, the Flood, Nimrod, and so forth. Once you understand the chronology, a lot of the stuff that we typically believe turns out to be impossible. And so, uh, so those things are really what I try to drill into uh, in the second volume of Rebooting the Bible. Now, was uh, so those changes that make the chronologies impossible to believe— uh, those do you think those were intentional changes by the rabbis after Jesus ascended after the destruction of the temple? Yeah, absolutely. I think it it was partly uh, the Book of Jubilees, uh, which was written uh, before Jesus was born, not long, but before, um, and it kind of began the process of altering the the lunar calendar and attempting to realign the history of the Hebrew people to uh, align it to every 50 years. You know, key events happened every 50 years. And, um, and so there were already changes that were being made there. Um, and the Book of Jubilees was kind of the catalyst for that. But um, what really was the catalyst was the, the school um, that was assembled in a little village outside of what today is Tel Aviv, a little village called Javnier or uh, the anglicism is uh, the anglo angloism or anglicism is uh, is jamnia and um, yes. and so a school was formed there um, and it so happens very few people realize that that the rabbis were actually the pharisees that the pharisees were the ones that escaped the uh, destruction of the temple and they were allowed by titus himself to to restore their their Jewish religion. However, they made a very significant change and that no longer was the Old Testament their authority. They began to uh, use as their authority what today we know as uh, is the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, mm -hmm. which was written from that, which was the concept of the oral law and having that written down and it became authoritative to the rabbis and the rabbis themselves claimed that they had authority to contradict and correct Moses even. And, uh, and so mm -hmm. that really was the rabbinical revolution of the first and mostly second century AD. And, uh, and so anyway, I kind of forget your question, but that's what happened. Yeah. But that's, isn't that where we also get the, the Masoretic text, the Masoretic text, um, comes from that um, uh, again you've got different textual families it's kind of complex and I go through it in the book and in a, in a DVD I've also done on it called the Septuagint controversy um, 
it's 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 it is difficult. It's complex. But yes, ultimately, the the text that is created by I say it's Rabbi Akiva, uh, Rabbi Akiva and his uh, team developed from a one textual family of the Old Testament of the Hebrew. They created a new Hebrew Old Testament, and in that Old Testament, they changed uh, the wording of messianic. Uh, prophecies, mm. and uh, and we can talk about what those changes were in a second. But they also changed the chronology, and they did that clearly uh, to try to invalidate the candidacy of Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah. And uh, many church fathers, uh, beginning with Eusebius and uh, and others, uh, Justin Martyr in particular, uh, complained about the fact that the rabbis had changed the prophecies and uh, and so it became a, a real problem so ultimately it becomes the matter masoretic text um over the next oh let's say 400 years um it is uh really uh, it's taken into the kind of the care of the masoretes and that's where we get masoretic texts from and um the jews are in babylon and they create the Talmud, and the Talmud, the Mishnah, and the Rabbi Akiba Bible become their holy books. Uh, it's a little bit like Mormonism or uh, other other religions, uh, cults that have multiple books beside the Bible. Mm -hmm. The uh, the rabbis, in effect, had multiple books, and uh, so by the beginning of the sixth century, the Masoretes take over the uh care the care uh of the old testament and uh, and then it you know it grows into the masoretic text mm -hmm. and uh, how we actually get to it and how it was published and so forth i actually have another book called the biography of the christian bible which really goes into some of those issues as well so uh well, christians don't understand much about where we get our bible and uh, so i'm i'm attempting to provide a bit more literacy about about our holy book, and uh, and why we can rely upon it. Well, let me ask you a question. If so, and this is something that I would never ask, you know, anyone in my church in in the church hierarchy that I go to. Uh, we, Sounds like a question I'd like to answer. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is our time. This is you know we're a dark lit digital speakeasy of yes, that's of right. People who ask these questions, knowing this, knowing that the Septuagint is probably the the actual text that jesus would have quoted from mm. uh knowing that's correct that, uh, that's knowing correct. that it was coming from a pure translation source and not mm -hmm. the masoretic text right uh why do modern denominations mo modern translations of the bible rely so much on the masoretic text for the old testament why do they do that why don't they just use the Septuagint. Well, there's, there's. It depends whether you're Catholic or Protestant. If you're Catholic, you rely upon the Akiba version because a guy named Jerome translated um, the Hebrew Bible of Akiba into the Latin Vulgate, so it became the Latin Bible. And unfortunately, he basically utilized, for the most part, he utilized the Hebrew. And uh, he and Augustine had a fight basically over. The Septuagint, Augustine encouraged him almost with tears to use the Septuagint to create the Latin version, and he refused to do it. 
probably because of ego. He had, he had learned Hebrew. He had moved back to Jerusalem. He learned Hebrew, and he decided to write the Hebrew Bible uh, based upon his own, uh, or Latin Bible, based upon his understanding of the Hebrew. And uh, so that's the reason that the Catholic Bible is uh, is based upon what we would say today is the Masoretic text. Um, and then the Protestants have a different story, uh, and it's because of the Reformation. Um, the Reformation, you put as the primary authority, the written scripture. And Calvin and Luther believed that if scripture were to be our guide, who better than the Jews could we go to to get the word correctly? And so not realizing apparently the, the problems that existed by probably not being familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek version of the, of the Old Testament, um, they basically emphasize what became the, is known as the Masoretic text. And so it has been the Protestant Bible ever since the 16th century. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the idea of going and using the, the Greek Bible that was translated from the most authentic version of the Hebrew that had been compiled around 400 B.C. by Ezra, it was only about 120 years later that that was translated into Greek by the folks in Alexandria. And so wow. you had a very, very small gap there between, you know, the text that Ezra had put together. Uh, basically, you know, a first generation copy went to Alexandria, and that was what was used as the basis for creating the Greek translation. And you're right, earlier, Jonathan, uh, between 80 and 90 percent of the quotations, and there's literally hundreds of quotations, as you would know, in the New Testament about the Old Testament, uh, those are from the Septuagint. And uh, there's lots of debate about, you know, the more fundamentalists amongst us that want to disagree with that. But uh, the scholars that I read, and I read quite a few of them, as you might imagine, uh, they essentially line up with that, uh, that assertion. So the Septuagint was the Bible of the early church. Um, the Vulgate, the Vulgate came along and by the sixth century it began to be the, the Bible that was used um, in the Western Roman Church. In the Eastern Roman Church, which we know as the Orthodox Church, they never stopped using the Septuagint. That was their Bible. And it has been their Bible ever since. Now, there are certain issues we can get into about origin and things that happened that Origen did in the third century, uh, which is another story, pretty complex, and maybe we don't want to go there. But I talk about it in detail in the book. But nevertheless, the Septuagint is the Bible of the Orthodox Church. And my view is that Martin Luther, yeah, Luther and Calvin, they didn't want to use uh, the Latin Vulgate, and they did not want to use the Greek Septuagint because it's, it was the Roman Church. And, uh, and they were obviously trying to revolutionize the nature of Christianity. So you're saying I'm safe at an Orthodox church. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're safe. Uh, you know, I, nice. we can talk about the icons and whether or not, you know, that's idolatry. Yeah, that's why I'm going. Are you kidding me? He just likes yeah. the beards. I well, just, the, yeah, I want the, the pictures, beards and the pageantry. Oh, know? yeah. Well, and the pictures are really neat. I mean, those <laughs> yeah. tiles and those stained glass windows. They really are beautiful. Cool. They yeah. are beautiful. And I'm, a, I, I'm an art, art lover, so I, I do uh, enjoy that. Yeah. You know, it really it really blew my mind. I I listened to a podcast with you recently, and you made that same statement that 
you know, Ezra, come, you know, they come out of the Babylonian captivity. Right. Uh, they build the te- they they rebuild uh, the temple. Right. Uh, Ezra, you know, they they um, they write out the Bible again. They write mm-hmm. out the Old Testament. And it's only 120 years later. Right. That the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, comes along. I didn't right. realize it was that sh- such a short span of time. It's like how do how is it knowing that now? I think it's so sad that now we know that now, but right. our denominations are just so locked up in their traditions. Yeah, that they would well, never. It's really that. true. Yeah, you know, and I, just to kind of emphasize that point again, the you know the time lapse from the time of Ezra's <clears throat> creation of the of the authentic Hebrew text, 400 BC, to be 500 years before that was, in effect, turned into the proto-Masoretic text that later becomes the Masoretic text. So there you have a gap of 500 years. And not only that, you get in and you look at the, the three codices that have complete Bibles, almost complete Bibles, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, Sinaiticus, uh, Leningradus, and the Vaticanus. These codices, codices means books, essentially. So mm-hmm. they had kind of gotten away from the scrolls. And now they were using, you know, books, pretty awkward kinds of books, but books nonetheless. Yeah. Found and, in parchment. Uh, yeah, and, and lo and behold, we have those uh, yeah. from the from the third and fourth centuries. And uh, I actually noticed literally today, uh, I'll make the point, then I'll come back to it, but the uh, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, there are two primary um, codices that um, exist that are used were used in the creation of the Biblia Hebraica, and uh, they were from the ninth and tenth centuries A.D. And so there you even had a gap from Akiba to the version of the Masoretic text used in the creation and the publishing of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, of almost a thousand years. Wow. And and, and about 14 or 1300 years back going back to Ezra. And so Christians truly have a treasure that they don't realize that we have so much more reason to believe in the book um, because of how close to the original uh, writing of the or of the compilation of uh, the Bible. You know, I, I happen to believe that Moses wrote sections and so did Isaiah wrote Isaiah mm-hmm. and Ezekiel wrote Ezekiel and so on. But Ezra was the one who compiled it. Obviously, he wrote Ezra. He may have written Nehemiah as well. Um, but you have all of that that comes together in that period of time and tradition says that three copies were kept in the temple and so perhaps one or a first generation copy of that of that compilation that bible was taken to alexandria and so you know i mean that's it's pretty hard to beat yeah that's cool So um, I want to get back to some of the changes that you mentioned, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. Mentioned that there were yeah. some changes from the Septuagint that those rabbis made about some of the prophecies, the Messianic prophecies, right. to steer yeah, people right. away from Christ. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, quoting them, I don't have all the stuff in front of me, but let me just explain. There were three categories of things 
that they were changing. And this becomes pretty obvious in certain um, you know, passages in the New Testament where you read them. And clearly it, that isn't the wording that's in the Masoretic text. But the, the changes were being made for three uh, reasons. One is they wanted to change the nature of the Messiah. The Messianic prophecies, such as the one that talks about Bethlehem and when it's coming from old, from of old and so forth, um, from ancient times or from eternity, uh, it appears in those passages that the Messiah is divine and that he is perhaps God and so forth. So one of the things is to try to find, is to make changes in the text that minimize the interpretation that uh, the Messiah would be divine and would be God. All right, so that's one. Second thing is changes in the, the message um, of the Messiah. And that really is salvation by grace, salvation by trusting in his name. And there are several passages that talk about trusting in God's name that are changed to where it's reinforced about believing in the law. And uh, so those, mm -hmm. are, those are changed. And then mm -hmm. the, the um, third thing, which I think is really in some ways the most important, is the nature of the mission of the Messiah. The mission of the Messiah, and I kind of get goosebumps when I say this, but it was to bring the Gentiles into the people of God. And the changes that were made in that regard are pathetic. <laughs> say it that way. Nice. They're really pathetic. Sure. <laughs> um, the Messiah was coming to bring the Gentiles into the people of God. Now we can talk about how that happens, you know, whether the covenant theology guys or the dispensational theology guys or this new thing called Commonwealth theology, you know, exactly how, you know, the Christians and the Jews are brought together, but the, that the Messiah was, that was his goal was to bring a unity between the people that were not with God and the people of God. And he was to bring them together. And that was uh, attacked very much by the, the rabbis uh, that had been the Pharisees, uh, obviously Jesus's uh, enemies, uh, you know, 50 or 60 years before they mm -hmm. tortured some of the Old Testament passages. Wow. So you're saying, and I'm just, you know, I'm learning, I'm wrapping my head around this, but that's good. When I'm, I'm thinking about like the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees and so forth of Jesus's day. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that because they had essentially the Septuagint available as they were as, as they were using primarily, I'm sure, or excerpts from it at least, they knew those passages that the Messiah would be God. Did, did they have that understanding? Because I always thought growing up that like they didn't they knew that the Messiah was going to come, he'd be a conquering king, he was going to deliver him from the Romans, they thought. But right. I never right. I never heard that they thought what he was going to be like no, God or God's Yeah, son. let me let me try to let me try to I would say correct that a little bit. Um, what they were, what the, what they were doing was, well, first off, I I think that they didn't believe that the Messiah was going to be a divine character, okay. but they heard these guys 
out there like James and John and Paul and all these guys talking about the Messiah as equal with God, as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe their God could come in the flesh. And so they didn't interpret those passages, but they wanted to make really sure that nobody else got confused. And so they altered some of those passages as nice. well. Okay. So in my view, they were forcing their interpretation upon those verses. And so, no, I don't necessarily think they believed that the Messiah was going to be divine. Uh, although it's sure, it, it's really hard when you're mm -hmm. thinking of the late Michael Heiser and some of his teachings. But, you know, when you understand that there was clearly two persons uh, in the Godhead, you know, yep. let alone the Spirit, uh, in the Old Testament, it's really hard to understand how they could not understand or could not yep. see that the Messiah was going to be divine. So, but anyway. Mm. Wow. Man. Wow. That's deep stuff. Yeah, for me, that's really deep stuff. <laughs> it's funny. Right before you mentioned uh, Commonwealth theology uh, in the mm -hmm. chat, one of our uh, buddies, Cactus Kicker, said they changed it so that Charles the Third would be born in Buckingham stables. <laughs> <laughs> well yes. said, Cactus. Well <laughs> said. Yes. Well. Uh, okay. <clears throat> I'm not sure which end of the which end of the horse he was, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever one had the best teeth. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, that's what you get here good. on the goslings folks there you go um, yeah we're gonna tip your waitress we're, uh, nothing is sacred here except the Lord. <laughs> that's, that's right, right. Amen. so i mean in all honesty speaking of which um you know listening to this uh and we've listened to you talk about this before but in our conversation mm -hmm. here tonight mm -hmm. um what are some of the most salient effects that are a result of the changes that have been made that affect a Christian's life in regards to, mm -hmm. you know, reading the Bible, understanding the Bible, going through their day-to-day -day life. What are some things that, uh, that people should be warned about in adherence to these changes? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, well, I think first off, you know, if you believe as I do that the, the chronology of the Septuagint was the chronology of the early church, and that it is, and of course, I take real pains to show that even, you know, there were several historians long before the life of Christ that said the same things in terms of the age of the world. And uh, they were saying the same thing, that it was basically 5,500 years from the time of the creation until the time of the Messiah. It wasn't 4,000 years. Right. And so that was a major aspect of what they were saying. And so if you understand that that means that the flood didn't occur in like 2350, mm -hmm. but it occurred in like 3350, which is really what the chronology says, then all of a sudden the history of Samaria and India and North Africa, all that begins to fit. Because that's when those civilizations started. They started in the in around 3100 BC, 3000 BC, 2900 BC. And so, you know, the idea that the world had to get kind of restarted again around 3300 BC 
makes sense in terms of its alignment with these other chronologies that academics rely upon. They don't rely upon the Bible's chronology because clearly, you know, this flood happened at 2350 BC. You know, it doesn't make any sense. There was, you know, there was a flood, but it couldn't have been then. And so you've got an apologetic value. Mm. So once you understand that you don't have to believe in the, you know, the Bishop Usher King James Version chronology, right. which is clearly wrong. You don't have to believe in that, but you can believe in a chronology that was actually the authentic chronology that really coincides with the the Egyptian chronology. And I'm saying it coincides plus or minus 100 years. But we're not good. talking about plus or minus a thousand years <laughs> right yeah, yeah. right <laughs> right yeah. and so yeah so it is a, it is a big difference and so you've got the apologetic value that's one thing the the second thing recognizing that the reason that there are differences in the old testament wording and the new testament wording which can cause you to kind of get your head you know kind of all twisted around worried about why are those wording you know i thought all the words in the scripture were we're right, every jot and tittle, every word, you know? Well, mm -hmm. I mean, the whole history of inspiration is another whole subject, but hmm. the the words of the Septuagint were the words that the apostles were quoting and uh, Jesus quoted. Now, I happen to believe that Jesus knew all the Bible by heart because <laughs> he was involved right. in its writing originally. So, <laughs> you know, for, forgive me for being a supernaturalist, but that, but I am. So <laughs> How dare you, uh, Doug? <laughs> but yes, but he he likely, you know, it was true that most of the Jewish people, they didn't understand Hebrew, even in Judea. They understood some of it, um, kind of like the way we understand some French and some Latin, but they didn't necessarily understand it uh, yeah. the way that the Pharisees did or the Sadducees did uh, and so forth. And so they spoke Greek and they spoke Aramaic. And those were their languages. And, and so, um, you know, the concept of, of the apostles speaking and preaching in Greek, that's exactly what the church had to do. It had to preach the vernacular of yeah. the language of the people. And it was yeah. Greek, right? And yeah. so, you know, yeah, it's, it's possibly true that Matthew wrote his gospel in Hebrew because he was clearly writing his gospel for the Hebrews. If you look at yeah. all the prophecies he was quoting, clearly that was his audience. But yeah. be that as it may, so that clears up an, a major area of confusion. And I like to point out, you know, that while the King James Bible Old Testament is incorrect relative to the Messianic prophecies, it's corrected in the King James New Testament. Why? Well, because the King James New Testament is quoting the Septuagint. Yeah. <laughs> and so okay. it, it creates the it creates the solution for that problem. Right? Okay. So you've got That's that. good. You're healing like a major wound in mine and some yeah, of Because I love friends. the King James. <laughs> I love like, the King James. Yeah. yeah. I was just scratching all over and I started doing all this stuff, you know. <laughs> the other thing I'll say last what I'll say last is that the the book of Jasher um bad bad juju. Book of Jasher bad juju. Uh, in terms of the stories that it tells, they are way off target. If the chronology of the Septuagint is right, the Book of Jasher has to be wrong. The Book of Jubilees, wrong. 
And so the book of Enoch, probably right, at least the first 16 chapters or so. So it's important because so many of our brethren uh, are reading these extra biblical pseudepigrapha and so forth. And they don't realize that the stories that they're reading that they just think are so cool, they're they're at best they're historical fiction. You know, they're they're it's kind of like the book Taylor Caldwell wrote about Luke, dear and glorious physician. Great story. None of it's probably true, but it was a great story (laughs) about Luke meeting Mary and other Mary and so forth and so on. And so that's kind of what you know, the book of Jasher is, I happen to believe the book of Jasher was probably written, not, it was written in the mid, kind of not in the middle ages, but probably in the 16th, 15th or 16th century. And was trying to take advantage of the fact this guy Gutenberg had made a printing press. And this was a cool book Uh, that people might want to read, you know, so I know I'm, I'm being very, uh, what's the right word? Cynical. Cynical, Uh, (laughs) Saying that, but that's kind of what I think. Yeah, you so, came to the right. Part yeah, you're in brother. good company. <laughs> you know, I you know I it, I was thinking about uh, when you're talking about the apostles mm-hmm. quoting from the uh, Septuagint. Right. I'm like, what an as a just as a Christian, I, Catholic, Protestant, mm-hmm. what have you. Right. Uh, what an embarrassing inconsistency it is that we def- we defined our canon like the New Testament mm-hmm. canon mm-hmm. by was this written by an eyewitness mm-hmm. of Christ. Right. That's right. one of the criteria. That is one of the criteria, yes. But we won't choose our translation on the same standard of, well, we're only going to choose translations that were quoted by the apostles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and of course, the New Testament, we're, we're golden. But going to the Old Testament, then yeah. that's really the question. And so it, that's what I'm saying, though, is that there's so little understanding of this history. But if you really want to you know, cast aspersions, if you want to blame somebody, Blame the theologians for the last three or four hundred years in the Protestant faith. This stuff, what I've discovered, is not really what I discovered. You know, it's out there. It's been out there the whole time. Yeah. And you had scholars talking about these things. I quote a lot mm-hmm. of them in the book. But they weren't popularizing this fact, and they weren't telling the people these facts. And so consequently, they probably, well, we don't want to disturb people. We don't want to tell them that, that the rabbis actually corrupted the old testament because well you know oops right right (laughs) but if you say but wait a second they 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 corrupted a version that they wanted to turn into their cult called rabbinical judaism Mm, which is essentially a cult off of hebrew Mm. uh the karates or the karates uh are a jewish sect that really only believes in the old testament not the talmud and so forth so they they've stayed true to the word of god but rabbinical Judaism is, it's, you know, it's not biblical by any stretch. So it, is this why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important? Because the Essenes had fled to the caves, by the way, fled to Qumran and they were hiding like oh, yeah. the, the, the excerpts that we got there's, from those. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. The, the, the actual amount of, of, uh, of documents that were Greek documents that reinforced the Septuagint. It's only about 20% of all the documents that were there. Um, you have a lot of repetition of documents, um, obviously certain documents that they found, certain books that they found, other books that they didn't find. So, uh, you know, it, it's hard to say exactly, uh, you know, what we have there. Uh, 
in terms of why it's important. But we, we do know that, you know, like the book of Isaiah, that um, does have a few uh, prophecies that were tweaked a bit. Some of those tweaks occurred even in Second Temple Judaism. You know, like I said, the book of Jubilees was already beginning to try to change the history of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And that could have been done in the second century B.C., in the first century B.C. You also had this thing called the Samaritan Pentateuch. Do you know about that? Mm -hmm. no. Never heard of that. Samaritan Pentateuch. All right. Remember the Samaritans, the Good Samaritan yep. and all that. Yep. Well, the Samaritans were the people that were brought in by Sennacherib and by the Assyrians to populate the land where they had taken all of the Jews, the Northern Kingdom, out. So that's what they would do is they'd take, you know, and the Russians did the same thing basically in the 20th century with Ukraine, is they took, they killed off 7 million Ukrainians and they put in Russian farmers to uh, farm the land. And so that's another reason why the Ukrainians and the Russians don't get along so well. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, this is what the Assyrians would do. And then they would disperse those people that they had conquered all over the place. All right. Now, that leads to some interesting stories that, and doctrines that Michael Heiser talked about that I think have a lot of merit. Um, but anyway, you've got that um, that element of it. Um, and I kind of forgetting what I was going to say. But anyway, I think that the understanding that there are these books that were created that mm, don't really consistently tell this they don't tell the, the truth about what yeah. was going on so anyway so uh, maybe i'll think about what it was i was going to say in a second. But anyway, <laughs> let's move on let's let's move let's, on. let's change let's talk I think, about uh, uh I think, oh yeah i think uh, well first of all i just want to say i bet those uh karate's get invited to all of the best bar mitzvahs <laughs> They, <laughs> it's right. No doubt. Oh my god! I've only been sitting on that one for three minutes. Um, no, but you know what? It makes sense though that that uh, the Septuagint would be the one to fall back on because when you think about you know the historicity, the historical context of the time, you're post Alexander the Great. You know, mm -hmm. even right. so, you're already in Greece, anyways. You know, or yep. you know the greater Hellenic area. But even outside of that, even in mm -hmm. Egypt, you know, like no one seems to ever remember that like Cleopatra is um, a Macedonian descendant, you mm. know, through Ptolemy, you know, because yeah. the Ptolemaic okay. line was, you know, mm -hmm. Ptolemy was one of Alexander. Well, that's yeah. that's so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Probably so. so probably so. Yeah. Greek all in the place. Mm -hmm. It's got to be more mm -hmm. common of a language than we like to give it credit for. Right. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Um, Clearly, it was the language of the of the world at that time, except probably when you went on the other side of the Indus river. But, uh, up until that point. Excellent segue, by the way, speaking of one world languages. Yes. Okay. <laughs> there it is. Nimrod and the tower of Babel. Ah, okay. You have such an interesting, it's so funny, Doug, because you are, you are one of those guys who is like, in a way, fringe of the fringe, you know, mm -hmm. with your, yeah it's like you've circled back around till you and Ryan Peterson, like kind of both mm. exist in this interesting area where you exist in this world where everybody's like Jasher and Jubilees and, you know, oh, Tower know. of Babel, but yet yeah. you don't have the same take that is kind of right. like the party line stand. No, that's true. I don't. I mean, I enjoy reading the book of Jasher. It's a fun story, but it's historical fiction. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's having the book said of that, Trasher. 
It's, the book of treasure. I've been sitting on that one. Treasure. Yes. Yeah. So no, copyright, I, copyright yeah. 2023. The Gossip. book of yeah, yeah. So you're getting ready to ask a question though, or make a point. So I, I kind of cut you off there. John. No, no, not at all. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, how dare you? Well, <laughs> I, think, I think the question was, um, you know, uh, so we have always assumed based on, you know, conversations with a lot of our guests and it's yeah. really oh, yeah. going to have fresh yeah, yeah, perspectives yeah. on this, right. that the rebellion at Babel, yeah. when oh, they were yes. building the tower Nimrod. was led by exactly. Nimrod. Right, 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 right. Well, um, we get that primarily from Josephus, who uh, he said that that was who led the rebellion. And it's ironic because Josephus's chronology uh, coincides to, to a great extent with um, the Septuagint chronology. But um, there's good reason to believe that Nimrod wasn't the person that led the rebellion. Um, and it, part of it's in the story itself. If you look at chapter 11 of Genesis, you don't see Nimrod's name mentioned at all. Right. Yeah. Right. And who do you see instead of Nimrod? It's the people. It's mm -hmm. we. And it says they did. We let's let us, you know, do this. Let us build a tower to heaven. It was clearly the statement there was making it clear that no one person was to blame. Everybody agreed. This is what yeah. we are going to do. Right. <laughs> and so um, so you couldn't blame Nimrod. Right now. Yeah. Here's the problem. If you if you say that the that the flood occurred roughly thirty three fifty. Barry Setterfield thinks it's more like thirty five hundred. But anyway, it's clearly a thousand years or more before what Bishop Usher and the King James Bible says. If you say that that flood happened then, then you have to come up with, okay, well then, when would the Tower of Babel have been? How how far into the future would that have been? Well, if you are if you believe kind of in the Bishop Usher thing, you'd sort of say, well, it's probably only about 120 years in the future. Well, then you get into all kinds of problems with how many people would it take to build a tower like that and had the people really turned away from God that rapidly and so forth. Now, if you if you postulate, though, that that was probably 250 years, then, you know, then you can have hundreds of thousands, probably several million people are already existing in the world by that point in time. All right. So you sort of say, OK, Tower of Babel probably happens roughly 3150, something like that, B.C., all right. Well, here's the problem. Nimrod isn't going to be born for another 200 years. Mm. So if oh. you look at the chronology, he won't be born for another, you know, 200 years and at least 100 years. All That's right. a big so, oversight for a historian like Josephus, it seems. I'm yeah, I, I don't I, I that one I can't figure out because he, he clearly says that he's when he's writing his his histories of the Jews that uh you know he's writing he says five thousand years of history but he really was just using a, a shortened it was five thousand five hundred and that's what demetrius the chronographer said he was a contemporary there's a book called the uh the world history it's like liber bibicatum antiquarum or something like that i forget the latin but anyway there there were that and there was one other source who I'm not remembering the name of, but these other chronologists had written prior to 
um, or in, in the same kind of time frame as the Septuagint, that's the time, you know, that's the chronology that they were saying it, it happened. All right. And so, so it, it, it really seems like it, you know, wasn't Nimrod. Now, what I believe is that there were, you know, several dispersions, because there's really three different dispersions talked about in Genesis 10 and in 11. And so you have to kind of go through and look at the verses carefully and see that. But it looks like that some of the people, perhaps interestingly, one of the sons of Canaan, whose name was Sin, S-I-N, that's the way it's at least spelled, maybe it's pronounced differently, but he appears to have left before the Tower of Babel incident. And that just happens to be the father of the Chinese race. You never hear the, the discussion in the news about the, uh, the, uh, the Anglo-Sino relations. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sino. S-I-N-S-I-N-O. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Oh, wow. So there's there's real a uh, historical precedent awesome. right there, yeah. And so you've got you've got the that that possibility. The other pro probability is that it was Cush, who was leading the rebellion, and he was leading the rebellion primarily to win back the respect for the lineage of Ham, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. and so he was there to try to do that. And he eventually, of course, they they fail, and they all move to North Africa. Cush means black, and it's supposedly that uh, really the Ethiopians, the black race of Africa, comes about as a result of Cush. Something happened to Cush when he was born, and he became he was black. All right, mm -hmm. so you know we don't know much about that other than. Tradition says that Nimrod was black, and he was the son of Cush, uh, and Cush was black. And so you get into some interesting stuff. David Roll the uh, talks about uh, the patterns, the patterns of evidence. Tim Mahoney's film mm -hmm. talks about this. And by the way, uh, when you line up, which I do in the book, you line up what Tim was trying to say but was afraid to say about the chronology. Um, it actually lines up exactly with what I'm saying, which has to do with the Exodus, the Exodus being around 1620, not 1440, not 1280, which is what the academics say. And the evangelical view is, well, it's 1440, and they conquered, you know, Canaan in 1403 and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I take the position that the Exodus occurred in 1628 at the time of the Great Volcano, uh, yep. at Thera, Santorini, uh, which was probably mm -hmm. either the most or second most powerful explosion of a volcano in the history of the world. Really? We studied that term. in ordination class. Oh, yeah, wow. did you? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And so I think there's a really good chance that that happened. And then it also happens to line up Catherine Kenyon, who's uh, an archaeologist, the daughter of, uh, of the famous uh, Ken, uh, Ken, Kenneth, um, how was it? Kathleen, can, can, uh, gosh, I'm getting, I'm getting, must be time, must be late. Kenyon, <laughs> Kenyon, Kenyon, yes. So that's our, uh, that's our fault, folks, by the way, because we're doing this pretty late. We're doing night, this so. late. Yeah. But anyway, uh, her father was a very famous archaeologist, 
dealing with the Middle East and so forth. But she had done work in the Middle East as well. And she identified the time of a burning of Jericho and the city of Laj and the city of Ai, that these cities that were burned, it looked like they all happened around 1560, 1570, 1580, mm. not 1405 BC. And so you've got a, an issue that, and Tim Mahoney brings us out in the film, You've got a real problem is that you cannot line up the evidence for when the um, conquest of Canaan occurs with um, the Bible's uh, timing on the Exodus, which leads, of course, people to believe that the Exodus really didn't happen. And so that's right. another right. fable of the Bible. So, you know, so does chronology matter? Yeah, it really does yeah, matter, it does. you know, because yeah. it yeah. tells the story in a truthful way. So getting back to Nimrod, uh, the other thing that that, you know, people talk about is, well, the Tower of Babel was about the division of the nations and divisions of the peoples. And that's that's what happened, because that's when Peleg was born and Peleg's name meant divide to divide. Well, the problem with that is that Peleg wasn't born for almost 450 years after the Tower of Babel. Hmm. And so that couldn't have been what it meant. And I <laughs> argue that it's not what it meant. Hmm. Uh, if you go study Peleg and the derivation of the names of Peleg throughout the Middle East, what you learn is that the term divide really was to divide by water or divide by channel, uh, divide by river or perhaps divide by glaciers melting and waters rising 400 feet worldwide and the like separation of drift. Yeah. Like except that, yes, yeah, yeah. so it's like that the continents would have separated because of the rise of the waters, perhaps frozen at the time of the flood. And uh, so I, you know, actually start the second book, reading the Bible part two, talking about the issue of Peleg and uh, Grant and Graham Hancock, by the way, uh, looking at the city of Alexandria, he's you know doing some uh, skin diving there, and so I talk a bit about that and start the book off with Alexandria and Grand Hancock, which is kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, but anyway, but it, gods, baby. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But anyway, so that yeah, it matters, and uh, those are the things that can really uh, can mess up our testimony and our witness to the truthfulness of the Scripture because we don't understand the history because it got fouled up. With the with the chronology of the Masoretic text, I wish that that information had been brought up when I was in that ordination class because that mm. was a it was a deconstructionist, progressive uh, mm -hmm. sort of postmodernist ordination class. Of course, mm -hmm. we didn't realize that till we were about a year into it. Right, and, right, um, right. right. Uh, and um, we actually talked about that uh, in our interview with uh, Elisa Childers uh, that we mm -hmm. will air this upcoming Sunday. And okay. it was the it was we talked about these things, and mm -hmm. because the chronology did mm -hmm. not match up with what we you know have mm -hmm. or do not have historical evidence for, right. uh, it was treated as some sort of inspired you know right metaphorical what can we get out of it we're all exactly. in our own wilderness kind of right. Faith right. oh it, right. i watched grown women cry in that yeah. class because their yeah. faith was being destroyed 
Ugh, yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, it's the where whole were you issue 10 of, years ago, Doug? <laughs> yeah, right here. <laughs> I was sitting there moaning and groaning about these same things going, that right. can't possibly be true. What does that mean? You know, if the, <laughs> if the pharaohs were around 3000 BC and Abraham was, you know, a thousand years later, I mean, how can that possibly be? Yeah. So uh, there's a whole bunch of other things. And of course, I go through and talk about all of those stories and uh, and really point out all of the reasons why Nimrod, the death of Nimrod. Oh man, that's a big section of uh, one of the chapters is just figuring out all the different stories about how Nimrod died mm -hmm. and, and realizing that it was impossible for Esau to have killed Nimrod. All right. Again, you theory. have these, you've had these big gaps of time between mm -hmm. these different characters. And so the book of Jasher, you know, give it a big raspberry, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, so right. it's yeah. it, it just it ain't just it just ain't so, man. It just ain't so. Do so we have I know stream deck hooked up? I yeah. it's it's not working. Oh, and I'll have uh, we got a bunch of sound effects on the stream deck. All right, I was right. gonna I was gonna hit a horn. Um, yeah, yep, yep. So I mean, yeah, that's uh, that's one of the things that uh, is kind of the neo modern sort of cool take on Nimrod is that he, you know he sort of was trying to resurrect the Nephilim, you know, empire. He became right. as a Nephilim, a mighty right. man, which, yeah. you know, and, and then there the, I think it's in Jasher where he wears the skins of, um, of yeah. skins of Adam and Eve. And that's right. an Esau finds him and kills him. And that's why he's so yeah. exhausted when he gets yeah. back. Can and, you imagine you know, how, how bad those skins would have smelled? <laughs> If he, <laughs> if, yeah, if, yeah. If those were the the skins from Adam and Eve, because if that was true, and let's say Adam and Eve was fifty five hundred BC, which is mm -hmm. when I believe they they were, especially created by God. <clears throat> now you're talking about what three thousand, well two thousand five hundred years. So yeah, those skins would have been pretty smelly. They probably yeah. literally would have been totally disintegrated. I mean, yeah, you know. You, you know I don't think they afraid. had that good of a tanner, you know, back no, then. No, I, I they, don't. Well, God did know. the work, so we have to give him credit for oh, it, right? Well. <laughs> you know, so I'm sure that they lasted a good long time. But, yeah. But uh, <laughs> but no, it's, you know, and of course, then we also have, uh, what's his name, the, you know, Hislop and the two Babylons, and he's way off target, oh, yeah. you know, way off target. It's interesting. All this stuff is interesting reading, but it's, you know, ultimately it's it can't be true. So, uh, yeah. But I do. I get in and I talk about that. The walls of Babylon—they—they they weren't, you know, four chariots wide, and they weren't forty miles around. I mean, all of this stuff is mythology that comes typically from the Book of Jasher, or from Josephus, or from some other source. But it's—it can't be true uh, for archaeological reasons and for uh, chronological reasons as well. And uh, oh, the, my favorite though is uh, the wife of Nimrod. What was the wife of Nimrod? Uh, oh, I forgot. Man, it's Semiramis. Semiramis, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Semiramis. Well, um, that's a real problem too. And I talk about why that was, you know, that why that's just a big mess as well. So mm -hmm. all these things. So I'm kind of a MythBuster, you know, like that <laughs> yeah, show MythBusters. Yeah. Kind of oh, MythBusters. Yeah. But the, the reality is that, hey, listen, I take the Bible literally when it's when it means to be taken literally. Mm -hmm. And I do believe in, in metaphor and that, you know, a lot of the Old Testament was written in poetry. 
Uh, so metaphor is important, but you know, when it's meant to be taken literal, it's meant to be taken literal. And I guarantee you the story of Adam and Eve, of Cain and Abel, of Noah, of Abraham, those stories are meant to be taken literally. Yeah. And the timeline that we have in the chronology of the Septuagint tells us that they can be taken literally. And so anyway, so that's my that's my preaching for this evening. That's a threat. That's a threat to a lot of yeah. uh uh, oh, it is, isn't it? Aggressive doctrine, yeah. especially. Yeah, way well, to way to be a real Dougie Downer. Well, listen, I I, <laughs> I, I, I I have been attacked by the King James people, as you can imagine. Right? Oh, I sure. bet. And yeah. so the the book I wrote, um, the biography of the Christian Bible, I wrote that book in between, uh, rebooting part one and rebooting part two, and it's specifically dealing with the issues associated with the King James version and the errors in the King James, the 1611 version, and why it's not the perfect version, and so forth and so on. It's a great version. More people probably have been brought to Christ through the King James Bible than any other Bible. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that um, the 1611 version was perfect, and that the King's English is more is meant to be more sacred than the original Hebrew or the original Greek, because yeah. it's not. But um, but, you know, there's a lot of folks that disagree with that. <laughs> so um, oh, yeah. Yeah. forgive me for uh, if you've uh, you may have mentioned this already. Um, okay. Is there what version of the Bible would you recommend? OK, well, uh, ironically, I still I like the English standard version of the um, of, of the Masoretic text combined with literally I'm going to turn around here and grab a couple of Bibles. Sure. All right. So I'll show you a few. This is, uh, let me know if you can read that, a New English translation of the Septuagint. This oh, is nice. a the most scholarly version of the Septuagint. It has great introductions to the books and explains the, uh, you know, the differences in the books between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. So it's a great one. Awesome. Its biggest problem is that it, the names of the Hebrews and all of the folks are not the names. They're not, not worded or spelled the way we're used to. And so consequently, it's very confusing. Um, gotcha. So the, uh, all right. So then the Bible I read out of the Septuagint is, I like my cover. Don't you like my cover? Um, very nice. Is, um, well, let's see here. I'll just do it this way. It's, it's the, the Lexham, Lexham English version of, let's see if I can get that right, the Lexham English version of the Septuagint. This was done in 2019. Okay. This is probably the most readable version. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles, you know, in terms of the maps, the back, and all that kind of stuff. It's just really the text, but it's very readable and uh, much better than the other versions to read. So anyway, those are the two I recommend. But my favorite version, really, this is the one I read from the Septuagint. And then the, the other one I like is the English Standard Version, the Archaeology Bible, because mm. the, the notes at the bottom of the page, if I can get that, you know, sort of right there, the Archaeological ar ar Archaeology Bible, the, all of the bells and whistles in this are fantastic. Okay. And it does a reasonably good job of pointing out the differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text cool. in key passages. Now, it's not going to go so far as to say 
this was corrupted by the Pharisees, <laughs> you know, in the year in the year 110 A.D. But it, nevertheless, it has fantastic uh, explanations, you know, lots of pictures of things and great notes at the bottom. So this is a tremendous study Bible. Cool. So, uh, yeah, you can see kind of like, you know, sort of the introduction and stuff like that. So anyway, so this is I, I, I love this Bible. I think it's a great Bible. So when I have time. And when I can be more disciplined, I like to read this Bible side by side with the Septuagint. Why do I like to do that? Man, do you find differences? There are <laughs> lots of differences. And some of them are, are you know, are surprisingly simple, but they change the meaning. And so, oh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's uh, Bible study, you know, good Bible study just never ends. Just well, never ends. Nick and I are, are both authors so we you know can spend a lot of time laboring over i've spent days laboring over one or two words you know which word do you use because it can change the meaning of the message that you're trying to convey so it it matters you know it It does really really matters it does Um, it does words matter words matter yeah they do That's right. We could, we could boil this whole interview down into like one second where you know, Doug just goes, words matter. Words matter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's my title. That's the title That's for just, the YouTube video. Yeah, yes. there we go. Nailed it. Now my now my other famous uh truism for writing, which I'll share with you, is there is no such thing as good writing. There is only good rewriting. Mm. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. And, boy, I, I believe that, especially if you're dealing with theology or science or anything you cannot you can't just whip it out like writing a sermon uh you have to really be careful what you say and how you say it so, oh yeah for sure. otherwise you yeah. might stumble into strange thoughts like the courts of heaven and some other weirdnesses but anyway yeah. go ahead <laughs> well i've got i've got like four questions okay uh, and i don't even know if we have time for all of these i maybe well, we're looking at an briefly. hour. We're looking at an hour six, according to what I'm seeing. Yeah, screen, man, so. I don't want. To, I'm okay. I'm going to skip a couple of these. That's um, fine. Do I'm, I'm happy to. We can go to the full hour and a half. That's fine. Nice. We appreciate I, that. I, I'll skip this yeah. one too. Um, real quickly, you talk about in Revel in Revelation. There's three different Babylons mentioned. I know you've mm. talked ah, about that. But could you? Because yes. I've I've loved studying Revelation. I always assumed it was just one Babylon. Right. Well. And this is something, this is one of my own heresies, okay? Um, I wrote a book recently. Let's see. This is called, Will Babylon Be Rebuilt in the Last Days? And this is a response to uh, Andy Woods. Andy Andy Woods believes, as does a number of other folks, uh, even Chuck Missler and so forth, that the ancient city on the Euphrates will be rebuilt and will become the center of the power base for the Antichrist. Well, I think it could be rebuilt as a, you know, it's a tourist attraction right now, a very bad one, uh, but it could be rebuilt. But I don't ever see it being the the center of uh, commerce, uh, political power, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see that as a possibility. So, but the answer, yeah, I've got, listen, I'm a dispensationalist, so I got to show you that I, I have a chart as well here. You may not be able to see it too well, but just so you know, it's in the book. And I, this is where I talk about the three Babylons and what happens and when they happen and all that. And the long story short is I believe there, the, there are three Babylons. I think the United States is one of the three and participates in the third. The first one 
is the uh, is the daughter of Babylon, Jeremiah fifty fifty one. It's very difficult to work those verses into the other two Babylons. They sort of stand alone, and um, and so I believe that that occurs. There is a destruction of Babylon, which is the United States, and I I'm predicting or have predicted that it will be destroyed, uh, possibly. Uh, I'm a still a pre-tribber. Uh, it will be destroyed, perhaps right at the time of the uh, tribulation, the beginning of the, of the, maybe a ten-year period of tribulation, which Daniel's last seven years start about three years later. Um, so the daughter of Babylon is America. I believe it will be destroyed in judgment before uh, the seven years of Daniel begin. Right, and I happen to know that there's about six or seven other people, like Grant Jeffries and. Chuck Missler and much of others that agree with what I've just said. So uh, they can't answer for themselves because they've gone to be with the Lord. But yeah. uh, but uh, nevertheless, that that is the case. Um, the second Babylon is um, the mystery Babylon of yes. Revelation uh, 17. And mystery Babylon, I happen to believe, is a religious Babylon, not a political, geopolitical reality, but a religious Babylon. Uh, belief, your religious Babylon, and I think it is certainly easily identifiable with the Catholic Church, all the mess that goes on at the Vatican and so forth, but I don't think it is purely a Catholic problem. I think that even in the good old charismatic churches and the Baptist Church, uh, can I say, I did say it, didn't I, that uh, <laughs> even in these churches there are uh, unbelievers and there are people yeah. that participate in mystery Babylon. Yeah. Um, all right. And so I tend to believe that that is the case. And uh, lastly, is Babylon the Great? Now, why would I say Babylon the Great is the is uh, is at, actually alive and well throughout that whole period of time, the seven years, uh, and ultimately it is destroyed when Jesus returns. But now, why are there three Babylons? All right. It turns out that there are. Each of those Babylons is destroyed by a different power, all right? And so let me just run through that. So the daughter of Babylon is destroyed by an alliance of nations from the north. So it could be Russia, China, North Korea. When they fire missiles, they're going to fire, fire them over the North Pole, all right? And yeah. so it is destroyed in what appears to be a nuclear war. And that is uh, its destruction. The destruction of, um, of Mystery Babylon, it's destroyed by the Antichrist and his ten kings. So that's very different than the daughter of Babylon and its destruction. And so it is destroyed by the Antichrist and the ten kings probably after the Antichrist has identified himself as the Antichrist. And I believe still in the temple uh, in some manner. He will disclose that and so forth. So um, so the Antichrist does the destroying of Babylon and uh, that Babylon is, is the religious Babylon. The third Babylon is Babylon the Great. Um, and it's destroyed at the end of the tribulation, the end of the seven year period of Daniel. And its destroyer is none other than Jesus Christ, right? 
Jesus Christ comes back and he destroys Babylon the Great. And this is where we finally see the words hallelujah, hallelujah, said in the Bible when Babylon the Great is destroyed. And so, so you have, in each case, you have a different time, time uh, frame for when these Babylons are destroyed. You have a different means for their destruction, how they are destroyed. Mm -hmm. And you have a different power that destroys them. And so that's why I, I have come to the conclude there are, in the end days, there are three Babylons. And that's why there are three Babylons. Mm -hmm. That's really this, the whole counsel of God, the scripture, would suggest that is the case. And so I know Andy Woods wouldn't agree with me, but uh, <laughs> he's a great teacher. He's a great teacher. So, but you know, in this, I think he's, uh, he's incorrect. So. Well, if everybody agreed with everybody, would there be left to talk about? Wouldn't be any fun. Would not right. be any fun. Honestly. So, no. but, I, but Andy Woods, if you're listening, I really like your book on the rapture, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, that's uh, I, uh, honestly a, a bit of back of house. That was one of the things we were really excited about uh, with having you on, Doug, was uh, mm -hmm. you have a uh, an opinion that is uh, well-informed, well-researched, and different from just about everybody else's when it comes to a handful of topics <laughs> yeah. yeah and that's nice. uh and that's true that's true yeah and yeah. Well, you gets know, me in trouble gets me in trouble sometimes. good for you not yeah. here yeah i'm not here does. <laughs> yeah. i appreciate that i appreciate yeah. that as as one fellow rebel to another good for you yeah. uh, yes but no that's one thing we appreciate because um you know we have been accused in the past of like only having people on who believe this or that and it's like right. you know it's yeah. like dude that's not kind of how it happens. We just like reach out to people we like, mm -hmm. you know, that we think yeah. are cool. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. everybody, whether it's you, Gary Wayne, Derek Gilbert, Ryan Peterson, Vicki Joy Anderson, guaranteed Gabriel Bello, you know, every single person that we've interviewed will have a different opinion somewhere. Yeah. But everybody right. gets along. Yeah. You know, right. Like, yeah, absolutely. Really about it. Oh, yeah. You know? No question about it. So, yeah, I, I like diversity. And yeah, uh, I don't like adversity. But I like diversity. Yeah, <laughs> so I like it, a true writer. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes it more fun. It does. Yeah. Um, you want to go? You want? I had yeah. Yeah, go for it. Do your question first. I know I had one that I really, really wanted us to sit or to get to, but while we still sure. had time, because okay. I know we only got like about 10, 15 minutes. Um, right. Tower of Babel. Uh, you have also spoken about CERN before, right? And um, I wanted to ask you briefly, do you think that there is a mirror between those two? And then uh, as a corollary to that, what are your thoughts on AI and its possible involvement with that? Mm. Well, you know, in general, a lot. in general, AI is involved in any sophisticated computer system uh, today and has been for quite some time. Um, the issue of, of quantum computing is perhaps uh, kind of a different issue, and quantum computing is certainly at the heart of CERN, and uh, you know, and it's a very different type of computer, um, and you know, there's a lot of mythology that's been developed around CERN and quantum computing and the religions at CERN and all that, so forth and so on. But anyway, AI, I happen to believe AI is going to be hugely important. I don't know that the Lord will tarry so long 
that AI will, you know, like the Terminator, like uh, Skylab, <laughs> will take over, right? Um, I don't think that that's the Antichrist. But uh, clearly, you know, the AI is going to be hugely um, Im impactful. And a lot of people are going to lose their jobs because of AI yeah. in the future. Yeah. So that is a really a destructive aspect of it. So there's real concerns. And, and unfortunately, the representative government we have isn't smart enough and they don't have the political will to try to understand these things and lead us through the maze to try to you know resolve these things before they become horrible problems that we have to yeah. deal with. So yeah. that so that's kind of what I think about, you know, AI. It's going to be super important. And it's it's already becoming really important. You uh, disappoint I, me greatly, Doug. I have so many guns and so much ammo. I was really looking forward to shooting some Terminators. But... <laughs> yeah. I know they're going to get me with you nanobots. Still, you can still shoot the aliens, you know? though. I can still shoot they're, the they're demons yeah. you can shoot. But don't yeah, worry. Right. I will be back. Yes. I'll be yeah. back. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'll, yes. I'll be back with my aliens. You know. I think I need a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think I said that quote to somebody yes. like last yes. week at work, and they uh, looked I, at me like a you know they had no. I, idea I, I like Terminator Two, one of my favorite movies, certainly. So uh, okay, yeah, so maybe. going back to CERN, um, CERN is the Tower of Babel. You know, I did. Um, a, a video with um, Anthony Patch on CERN that, gosh, we sold a bunch of copies of that. And you can see sort of uh, truncated versions of it out in, uh, in the, on the internet, Anthony Patch and Doug Woodward. Uh, and so I, you know, we, we've talked a lot about that. And I think that what we discussed is, is really quite true. Um, I don't know that, CERN really sits on top of the bottomless pit, which is uh, a view that Anthony held. Um, I do think that <laughs> CERN is a pit. I think that <laughs> it's it's a real it it you know it it's doing some really wicked things. Mm -hmm. um, based upon the book I'm working on now, I think the Higgs boson is a bunch of malarkey. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and I you know the God particle ain't mm -hmm. the God it ain't God yeah um, and so I think that's the case I think that it's a horrible way to spend you know billions of dollars to build a big circle in the ground two hundred feet below the ground dude um, no kidding you know and to try to split the atom eighteen ways to Sunday uh, which it's done you know the the idea that you're going to continue to understand the atom by continuing to split it into little tiny particles i i don't think you're going to get any get any mileage out of that ultimately but that's just my non-astrophysicist you know point of view um the issue of quantum reality uh which is related to cern of course um that's a pretty important thing you know our understanding of of, of quantum reality the nature of the way the atom is, is structured um all that's pretty pretty important um but i think cern does represent a focal point for pagan religions in europe mm -hmm. um i think you saw mm -hmm. that with the uh with the tunnel i don't remember the name of the tunnel it wasn't the carlisle tunnel but it was something like that i don't remember and, the name but i remember this the opening ceremony oh yeah all oh, the ceremonies yeah it's just unbelievable 
And, uh, of course, those are that's right by CERN, where that occurred, just a few miles away. Um, and, uh, and so you've got pagan religions that are very involved. And now the, the one that's the most fascinating that we talked about at length is the relationship of Saturn to CERN. Mm, yep. And so we go into that mythology around Saturn to a great deal, a great deal. Um, the Do rings you... of Saturn and so forth, and the rings of the people that encircle the you know the Kabbalah at uh, in Mecca. Mm-hmm. You know, those rings turn the same way. <laughs> Have you? Um, so okay, you're touching on like uh, uh, you're scratching another little pet itch of mine here. Uh, <laughs> okay. Are you referring to like the cult of Saturnalia, the Black Cube, uh, the, the Black Cube? You... Yep, Saturnalia, uh, and all, then like the... all of that. There's the star, or the uh, the eye of the storm. Uh, I think on the pole of Saturn that has that same yeah, the, shape well, there's, as the there's three-dimensional the, shape in the star of Remphan. Yeah, I mean you can see that it's a hex, it's a hexagon. That's what um, yeah, I actually do believe that that hexagon is in fact created naturally, not supernaturally. Okay, and and so uh, and that's based upon. It can be it can be reproduced. I'm told in a lab, um, mm-hmm. you know, by the folks that do the electric universe and all that stuff. So, oh wow! It ha- it, so it's an electrical reality of what's going on on Saturn and Jupiter. They have they're just super powerful electrical magnetic storms and so forth that are going on there. So that's that's true. The other the other pole of Saturn, of course, has has the spiral. And it, that spiral really is like an aurora borealis, I believe. Um, and once again, you have really powerful electromagnetic uh, realities going on there. You have plasma, you know, in the atmosphere creating an effect auroras, just like plasma or ions create the auroras uh, on Earth uh, mm-hmm. for electromagnetic reasons. So, so you got that going on. I I think that Saturn as a Focal point for the cult of Saturn. Um, I think it's absolutely the case that that is a big, big deal. And I think the cult of the Black Cube is a it is a myth. I think built around the cult of Saturn. Um, I uh, I find it curious and fascinating that you see these black cubes, you know, in so many different places in movies yeah. and. You know, mm-hmm. and all that. You know, the uh, the assimilation. Who are the guy? The Borg. You know, the Borg uh, yeah. yep. spaceship is a cube. We will assimilate yep. you. You know, so resistance yeah. is futile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's right. So, so I. That's where I'm coming from. And and we did. Uh, I'd encourage folks to. Um, you can get the CERN DVD from Prophecy Watchers, and you could probably get a special the. A combination of, and you can get it from me as well, by the way, at, at my website, um, CERN and the book Revising Reality, uh, Volume One. And so yes. that is a um, that's a pretty fascinating read. People really get a kick out of that book because we cover so many issues, and you know, essentially the the thesis is pretty simple. If you really understand bis- biblical. Uh, cosmology, it blows the lid off of uh, the cosmology developed by Carl Sagan and, and the astrophysicists of today. 
you know awesome. and so uh yeah so it's if you haven't read it i i'd encourage you to read it I, it's it's a book that you'll have a lot of fun with you know i kind of look at a lot of these modern uh scientists astrophysicists especially the the pop culture charismatic ones as being like modern day magi you know mm. like they're kind mm -hmm. of spinning uh a cult you know, mm -hmm. a, you know right. there is a wizardry kind of mm. aspect especially yeah. with their charisma and yeah. just you know what yeah. one of our one of our friends calls demon math you know and astrology or you know. <laughs> so, right yeah i know mm. i heard some guys talking today about the courts of heaven and that seems to oh, be yeah. a mm. topic of of current consternation and i heard mm -hmm. about this five or six years ago and i just i thought it was ridiculous but yeah. you know, uh but anyway but yeah to your point uh there's a lot of uh you know charismatic hubbub around this whole thing right now and it's like people are always searching for the new thing you know the new yep. flavor of the month right mm -hmm. and um you know it's man the old time religion is good enough for me yep uh you know i think you've got to get back to the basics you know yeah you know, read a book like hannah whitlaw smith's uh the christian i think it was it called the it's not the christian life but it's it's really about how to live the christian life and uh but some of these old books by the masters you know um the let's see what is it uh the guy that wrote the book about uh holiness of god aw <laughs> tozer tozer uh, yeah. yeah yeah you know read those books man yeah that's just they they chill your they they give you you know chills and, well, and uh, a lot of people, yeah. they don't they don't realize that a lot of this stuff is not really that new. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you yeah, know, when I started writing the Heavenly Realms novels, mm -hmm. uh, my dad gave me uh, or our dad gave me a copy of Clarence Larkin's The Spirit World, which yeah, was right. written in what, 1922? Probably. You know? right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right. This is not a lot of this stuff is all that is new is simply that which has been forgotten. Yeah, there's nothing well, new under the sun. That's right. You know, Samson or not Samson, uh, Solomon. Solomon was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing new under the sun. That's right. So yeah. Uh, yeah, but anyway, I I do <laughs> I get very disgusted with what I see, and you know, boy, you have to keep your eyes on Jesus because yeah. if you put your eyes on any human, you're going to be disappointed. Yep. And um, you know, you just you gotta put your eyes on Jesus. Yeah, and that's more than enough. That'll keep you busy for the yep. rest of it your is. life. It yeah. is. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Especially when you have to give stuff up. <laughs> All right. Well, do we have one more question before I fall asleep? Man, I, I just wanted to uh, ask you about uh, the sequel to Revising Reality. Yeah. Volume two. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm 100 pages in. Nice. And I've been, and I've been working very carefully through each of the chapters, and I'm uh, attempting to explain. I have to go through and explain some of the basics about astrophysics, and you know, I have to kind of start off and talk about Kepler and the laws of motion and the way the planets work, and then, you know, and then I, I get into um, relativity and mm -hmm. explain what relativity really is, why relativity was created in the first place and it was because of a mistaken uh, interpretation of an experiment that occurred in 1887 
and uh, and was continually botched up by most everybody except a few guys that got it right. And um, what Einstein argued is not not true. There's there's other explanations for why things happen the way they do. Um, Einstein always said that speed, you know, that the light speed is the same in all directions at the same time. So no matter whether you're, if it's like you're, you know, if you're in a car and you throw a baseball at somebody while the car is going 80 miles an hour, you know, you're going to, that baseball is going to be 80 miles an hour plus the speed of how you throw the ball. So you throw the ball at 90 miles an hour, that ball is going to be at 170 when it hits you, right? <laughs> and so, but Einstein would say, <clears throat> if that's light, you know, going, traveling down the highway, um, that light is going to go, you know, at 186,000 miles per second towards you and 186,000 miles per second away from you. It's always the same. It's a constant, mm -hmm. right? And that's, that's, you know, the kind of the core idea. And he also said one of the corollaries is that there's a vacuum in space and there's nothing that can slow light down. There's no ether. There's no, this sort of stuff that was discussed about whether there was an ether. Uh, in effect, it's a substance in space that propagates light waves, just like air mm -hmm. propagates sound waves. Mm -hmm. And seawater, you know, is able to propagate waves on the ocean. And so, um, you know, any type of wave has to have a means to propagate it. It doesn't work in a vacuum. And mm -hmm. so there are those that would say that it does, but the reality is that there is some substance there. The ether does exist. So part of it is, is to talk about that. Um, but I'm going to get into zero point energy, uh, discuss uh, the electric universe. Of, uh, if you guys are familiar with the Thunderbolts project at all, mm -hmm. uh, the Cosmo, okay, Thunderbolts project, you want to begin to get familiar with some of the electric universe stuff because that is uh, very much uh, Missler got into this just at the you know, at the towards the end of his ministry, and he was uh, very enthusiastic about the electric universe concepts. It's not gravity that really shapes the universe. It's electromagnetism. And um, so that's really a, a key factor. So the bottom line is that astrophysics, astronomy, the way it's taught, it's wrong. It's all wrong. <laughs> and, um, and when you understand it, it is, it's really exciting stuff. So uh, anyway, so... I'm, I'm doing what is a very difficult thing. I'm taking these really hard subjects and trying to simplify them and explain them in such a way the person can go, you know, I get it. I understand why light can't be a constant, you know, yeah. <laughs> or and, and so forth. And so anyway, so that's what I'm trying to do. So that really is a book on here's Christian cosmology and here's why a Christian's cosmology is shaped the way that it is. That's cool. And so, yeah, so that's what I'm trying to do. We'll see if I succeed. <laughs> it's it's going to be tough. Do you think it'll turn you into a flat earther, Doug? Mm, no. <laughs> no. Why did I think that was going to be the answer? Yep. No, no. I, I loved Rob Skiba. He was a good friend, but yeah. um, but that um, is a is a problem, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's more intriguing to talk about whether or not we are an emotionless Earth and the whole universe revolves around us, which is the argument, uh, you know, of uh, the Earth being at the center of the universe and geocentrism, uh -huh. geocentrism. Mm -hmm. And that's that's bubbled up in uh, a lot of the work that if you go to the uh, website, Galileo was wrong. 
Uh, that's all about, you know, the guys that are doing that work. Uh, a guy named Robert Sungenis, I think is what his name is, this massive book, which I've studied. And there's, there's real strong arguments. The, uh, the point that Einstein said is that, you know, basically, you're right. We can't prove that the world is even in motion. The world could be sitting still. And because of the way that these experiments work, we can't prove it moves. However, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. So I don't, th I think the earth does move, but, um, you know, which is, you know, anathema to these guys that, you know, talk about the geocentrism, the, the revision of geocentrism. It's very Catholic, you know, that's what they're, where they're coming from. And I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I congratulate them on some tremendous work, but, but I, you know, at the end of the day, um, there is an ether and it blows at about 36,000 miles an hour uh, at all times. And it's blowing us towards uh, um, Vega, I think it is. So, mm. you know, and so there's a speed of the earth moving through this solar system and a speed of the solar system moving through the galaxy and so forth and so on. And so um, once you understand all these things, it's kind of like, wow, this is pretty cool cosmos we're in. Yeah, it is cool, isn't it? Yeah. No matter what it is, it's pretty yeah, fascinating. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So well, Doug, you've been an awesome guest. We've really enjoyed talking with oh, you. A scholar. You. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. And oh, uh, I, appreciate I hope that. That we can bring you back sometime and talk more because I have yeah, there absolutely. are still questions that <laughs> now I got the itch on some yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. definitely want to ask you some things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm gonna put your book up on the screen or just the second the second rebooting the yeah. Bible. Yeah, I'm going to throw this fine. up here real quick so people can see what it looks like. Yeah. That that QR code just takes people to Amazon. But where else can people find you and your work? Right. Well, you can certainly uh, you can certainly come to my website. My website is faith-happens, faithhappens.com. And I have a store. All of my books are there and my videos. I have several videos. I have a new video, which I'll show you. You might you guys might find it interesting. Um Let's see if I get it. You read that? Yes, I saw evil, that. Evil in the CIA. Uh-oh. So, yeah. So this one will get me uh, killed. So uh, <laughs> I got yeah. plenty of, of uh, bunkers to hide you. Yeah. Like, so, so if, if, if you hear me committing suicide sometime <laughs> in the near future. You didn't get Clinton? Don't believe it. Yeah, Arkansas. No, it's yeah. Arkansas. Two to the back of the head ruled as a That's suicide. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, I never figured out how you could do that with a shotgun, especially. Uh -huh. But yeah. uh, but anyway, yeah. And so uh, you can find them at my website again, faith-happens.com. Uh, and then uh, Prophecy Watchers has a lot of my books, cool. and they have some they have some packages. I do some bundles on my website, and that's something that Amazon doesn't do. Right. So I'll package a DVD and a you know and a book or two books and so forth. And uh, yeah, so as I'm selling the rebooting the Bible books are twenty five dollars a piece, but um you know i offer them for like 45 dollars for a set and then the the new uh dvd i did which is a two-hour dvd that walks you through all the salient points of the two books um is you know can be bought it's called the septuagint controversy mm -hmm. and uh, it's out there as well so cool. uh, people may want to read that or may want to watch that awesome. especially if you don't want to read 800 pages right <laughs> but you know what? When the grid goes down, the paperback's going to be uh, a nice uh, thing to have. It, it that's is. Right. That's, that's right. right. That's yep. right. So, Doug Woodward, anyway. 
You are a scholar and a gentleman in the truest sense of the word. Well, we have had you. an amazing time. We've been keeping an eye on the chat as well, and they have really thoroughly enjoyed it. So. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. We're extremely blessed. And I think well, Doug has struck down the darkness today. I think oh, so. Yeah. Down. Yeah. Struck down hey, the darkness. that is good news. <laughs> yeah. It's good news. Well, it's probably these lights that I bought. Derek Gilbert told me where to get some really great lights. And so, yeah, those are cool. That so, looks good. Yeah. That looks yeah, good. So, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. All right, guys. Thank you a lot. I've had a lot of fun. I appreciate it much. Great talking thank with you, man. Doug. Have a good rest of your night. Get some right. sleep, sir. All right. Thank you. Good night. All See right. you, buddy. Bye. Bye. Hey, if you guys have been enjoying this interview and you'd like to hear the rest of it, including some really down and dirty stuff that we're not allowed to say here on YouTube, uh, head over to patreon.com forward slash the goslings. We'd love to have your support there and share exclusive content with you. That's right. Keep it cool. And remember, these are interviews that strike down the dark. They do indeed strike down That's the right. darkness. They strike down all the darkness. That's right. Strike it down hard. So hard. So hard.